0: First Samuel chapter eighteen. First Samuel chapter eighteen. <clears throat> I am starting a series. I have started a series on uh, the covenants of God, and as a matter of fact, each Wednesday night I'm teaching on the covenants of God. Last Wednesday night I taught on the nine covenants of God in the Scripture, began to show how that God revealed Himself and uh, entered into covenant with man. Nine different distinct times. I shared that last Wednesday night. And I'm going to continue that study for the next several weeks. And if you'd like to follow along, you can pick it up off the internet. And uh, you can watch the podcast or listen to the audio uh, at your convenience. But I'm studying the nine covenants of God. There's not a more important or relevant subject in scripture than covenant. Number one, because covenant is the essence of salvation. The fact that I am saved is because that I'm in covenant with God. And so when we talk about covenant, we're talking about our salvation. There would be no salvation without the covenant that Jesus instituted uh, through his death. There would be no salvation. The document, the legal uh, uh, instrument of our salvation is the blood covenant of Jesus Christ. And so when you're talking about covenant, you're talking about the most important thing in the world is, are you saved? Secondly, the Bible is a book of covenants. It's divided in two general categories called the Old and New Testaments. The word testament is somewhat of a newer Greek word translation for the word covenant. So your Bible is a covenant book of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And to really understand the scripture, you have to have an understanding of covenant. If you don't understand covenant, much of the Bible is going to be a mystery and very, very vague. You have to understand that it is a covenant book. And uh, we preach a covenant theology. So this is a very, very important subject. Today, I want to talk to you about covenant keepers. God not only institutes or initiates covenant... But he is a covenant keeper. He made a covenant so bold to say as it, that it was an everlasting covenant. Only God could make an everlasting covenant. For you and me, we can only make a covenant for the duration of our life. But God lives from eternity to eternity and he makes an everlasting covenant. He's a covenant keeping God. And because of that, you and I must too be covenant keepers. We are covenant keepers. And uh, I want to talk to you about two great covenant keepers in the Bible and see what we can learn. 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 4. And when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. So David went out wherever Saul went with him and behaved wisely." And Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now, this excerpt from Scripture takes place in the era of the kings. In the Old Testament, there were five eras. Eras that directly related to the form of government and leadership of God's people. The first era was the era of the patriarchs. This would have been Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, etc. The first big major characters of Scripture. Secondly would have been the era of the priests. This was when Moses established Aaron as the first high priest. And from his lineage would come a whole government of priests. The third era was the era of generals. This is in the time when God established generals that would lead God's people such as Joshua, who was a military as well as governmental leader. Then there was the era of the judges, judges that God raised up to lead his people, judges such as Samson and Gideon and Deborah and many more. Then there was an era of the prophets. This would have been epitomized by Samuel, who was a bridge between the judges and the kings. And uh, he was a mighty man of God that was called to transfer or um, transition the government. The final era of the Old Testament would have been the era of kings. This lasted about 425 years. And there was more than 22 kings of Judah, not counting the kings of Israel. For there was a time when the kingdom was divided between the northern and the southern tribes. But this was about a 425 year period of time. And during the prophetic ministry of Samuel, the people come to Samuel and say, we want a king like other nations. And Samuel said, no, God is your king. He doesn't want you to have an earthly king like other nations. Don't ask for a king. But they continued. And finally, Samuel goes to God and says, God, the people are demanding a king. And God said to them, go ahead and give them a king, but it's a big mistake. Warn them what's going to happen. And so Samuel, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, found Saul and selected him to be the first king of Israel and set him in that place. Now the interesting thing is, from that moment forward, the spiritual life and health of Israel began to decline. And some of the most evil um, kings Israel ever had reigned during that period. And these kings were ungodly and carried Israel down a path of sin and rebellion against God. So for 425 years, they continued to decline spiritually until the last king of Judah was Zedekiah. And he was taken captive and carried into Babylon where they became captives. And so it was from that era all the way to 1948, some 2,500 years before Israel would become a formalized nation again. And it was all because they cried for a king when God said, I am your king, but they rejected his kingship and wanted an earthly king, and because of that, that leadership carried them further, further away from God until they were taken into captivity, and even though there were many returns to Israel and many streams of people coming back to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, they were never a sovereign nation again for 2,500 years until 1948. Well, the one lesson we learn from that is God's way is the best way. And what may not seem like a big deal now in the course of generations may be a really big deal. It's always better to do things God's way and use his patterns and his plans. Even when number one, you don't fully understand it. And number two, it doesn't really seem like it is working really well. And number three, everybody else is doing it a different way. But Israel would not obey God. And because of that, they ended up into captivity. So let's learn to always do things God's way, regardless of what other cultural trends and what other people might be doing. And so Saul was the first king of Israel. And the Bible says that Saul was God's man for as long as he was small or little in his own eyes. But the prophet said, when you have gotten big in your own eyes... You have inflated your own sense of self-worth and importance. Your kingship has gone to your head. He said you have been rejected and no longer will you or your children ever be king. So God stripped him of the, di- of the kingship and he chose another man to be in his place whose name was David. So the story we're reading is in between that time when God is fixing to move the kingship from Saul's family to David's family. In the 17th chapter of Samuel, we see where David, who is just a shepherd boy, maybe 16 years old or so, he is carrying cheese to his older brothers that were in an extended war with the Philistines under the direct leadership of Saul. And so as David goes in with a little cheese for his brothers sent from his father's hand, he sees this giant of a man called Goliath that is defying God and the children of Israel. And David, in youthfulness and with a certain sense of destiny on his life, rises up and goes out and fights Goliath, just a boy against a mighty evil man of war. And miraculously, young David destroys Goliath. Now you can imagine how this instantly caused him to rise meteorically until he was the, the, the star, the idol of all of Israel. And so Saul called him in and made him his armor bearer. And wherever Saul went, David would go with him. And so it positioned David in a, to, to be the next king and to gain the favor of all the people. Now remember that Saul was a wicked man. There was a time when the hand of God was upon him. And that he prophesied and spoke and was was a great leader for God. But then he grew large in his own eyes and he got away from God. He disobeyed God and God rejected him and took it away. And instead of having the Holy Spirit upon him, Saul had evil spirits that came and tormented him. And during these times he would call for young David, who not only was a mighty man of war but was also a great uh, Psalmist, And he would bring instruments and David would sing to the Lord God of Israel and play instruments and that evil spirit would leave Saul. An interesting, interesting drama played out in Scripture. But as David continued to gain favor with the people and grew into manhood, Saul made him king over his armies. And the people recognized that wherever David went, there was victory. And wherever David went, there was prosperity and happiness. And the people loved David and they hated Saul. And Saul became very jealous and made up his mind he was going to kill David and did everything in his power to destroy him. To the point that ultimately a dictate was made that David was to be executed on sight and David ran like a fugitive to to save his own life. But uh, there is a, a beautiful caveat in this story that I want to talk to you about this morning. It's the story of Jonathan, Saul's son. He was the oldest son and he was the crown prince. That means that when Saul was off the scene, Jonathan would stand up and become the king. Now, have you ever known a family that, um, <clears throat> that it was pretty much a, a family that didn't have character and, and weren't respectful and, and weren't admirable in any way? But they had one person in the family that was like different. One person in the family that was just honest and integrous and treated people right. And you're like, man, how did that one guy or one gal, how were they raised in that environment and turned out to be a really good person? Have you ever seen that before? Well, I think this is what happened in the, in the family of Saul. In a family of wicked people, there was one guy, his name was Jonathan, that had character, that had integrity, and that just did the right thing. And so he's the crown prince. He's next to be king. And suddenly David comes on the scene out of nowhere and is being, and is being raised up by God with favor with all the people. And the hand of God was upon him. And, and Jonathan is in a position to realize this is the guy... That I have to worry about. I'll never be the king if the people love David. I'll never be the king if they're shouting David's name. David is gonna take my place. But Jonathan loved David, their soul was knit together. And as a result, they made a covenant one with another. Two men made a covenant and they said, We're gonna love one another, we're gonna be friends. We're going to protect one another, and we're going to defend one another. They made a covenant together. As a matter of fact, remember, Jonathan was the crown prince, and he took off that kingly robe, that robe of a crown prince, and he put it on David's back, saying to David, David, I'm going to give you my kingship. He could have fought for it. He could have defended it. He could have said, I have a right. He could have been jealous. Instead, he took off that robe and put it on Saul's back and said, on David's back and said, I want to give you my robe. And their soul was knit together. Then he took off his belt. This is what he kept his armor on. This was his, his weapons of war. Remember, they were soldiers of the highest order, hand-to-hand combat, combat, and all their weaponry was on their belt. And he took off that belt, that piece of armor, and he put it around David, and he was saying to David, your enemies are my enemies. And when you're in a fight, I'm in a fight. And if somebody attacks you, they're going to be attacking me too. Because we are joined together in covenant relationship. A remarkable, remarkable story. And so David and Jonathan became covenant friends. And they vowed their lives together. And they were faithful and loyal even unto the death. As a matter of fact, on a particular occasion, as you continue to read in chapter 20. Uh, David said, Saul, uh, Jonathan said to David... David, I'm going to go talk to my dad. And if there's any way that I can heal this or settle this or speak sense into him, I'm going to welcome you back into the palace and you'll be safe. But he said, if not, I'm going to come back to this spot and you'll be hiding in the woods and I'm going to release an error. And when I send my servant after that error, if I tell them go further, go further, go further for the error, you'll know, David, you've got to flee for your life because my father's going to kill you. And he said, all I want to do is I want you to promise me that you'll be faithful to my children and my children's children and my future generation. Don't ever raise a sword against me or mine forever. And he and David made that covenant together and they were covenant keepers. Even though Saul aligned himself with David against his father, even though, even though Jonathan aligned himself with David against his father Saul, and even though David was going to sit on the throne that Jonathan rightly could have claimed, he aligned himself with David, and they became covenant brothers, covenant keepers. You know, each of us must be covenant keepers in our lives. As a matter of fact, you and I all have various covenants in life. Now, I know that covenant language is not really modern terminology. We think in terms of contracts more than we do covenants. But we all have covenants. First of all, as a child of God, you have a covenant with God, which, as I said earlier, is is the essence of your salvation. It's the legal instrument that assures your salvation. Secondly, you probably have a covenant with your spouse and with your family. Marriage is a blood covenant. Marriage is a blood covenant. And when you are married to someone, you have entered into a lifetime covenant with that individual. It's a covenant. You have a covenant with your family, your children, your siblings. There is a family covenant that all of us are a part of. Then there is a covenant with with your pastor and the elders and the spiritual family that you're a part of. Membership is about being in covenant together. Now, membership to a church is a covenant, but it's not a covenant on the same level as that with your spouse, but it's still a covenant. And it has that nature of commitment, that nature of loyalty, and that nature of being mutually beneficial. Then you have covenant with friends. Now, you know, you've got a lot of friends. I have a lot of friends. Some friends are, are closer than others. That's the way life works. But you have friends that you are in covenant with. And your, your, your soul is knit together just like the soul of Jonathan and David was knit together. I want to encourage you to build those kind of relationships in life and to always be a covenant keeper. Always be a covenant keeper with those covenant friends that you have. You also can have covenants with career associates. There are people that you relate to in your career pursuit that are strategic to your future and what God is doing with you in the arena of your career. Now, there are different levels of covenant. Obviously, there, your covenant with God is the strongest of all. Your covenant with your spouse would be second to that. And, and, but you have covenants of a, of a lighter sort your, in, your, in your field of career. People that God sends to you to covenant with, to to do what you do, and to conduct the business that you conduct. And so whomever you're in covenant with, even if it's a business associate, be loyal, be faithful, and be a covenant keeper. Make sure that you're a man of your word that puts God first and relationship first, and make sure that you keep your word at all costs. Because we as the children of God, we are covenant keepers. Can you say amen? Now, I want to share with you seven things that we learn from the covenant of Jonathan and David. Seven things we learn from them. First of all, I learned from Jonathan to recognize the hand of God on other people's lives. David comes into the the, scene as just a teenage boy. The Bible said he was kind of ruddy, he was fair, complected, he was handsome. Uh, some of the translators believe he probably had reddish or auburn type hair, which is a little inconsistent with the whole uh, israeli look but but he had a unique and he was he was considered a very handsome man and This young boy comes in and, and Jonathan. Who had never met him, Jonathan raised in the palace, David raised on a, on a sheep farm somewhere in totally different worlds, different families, different arenas. And yet when David comes on the scene, Jonathan looks at him and says, the hand of God is on that young man. The hand of God is on that young man. You know, I really believe that a mature believer needs to have a developed sense of recognition, of, of noting who God's hand is. Is upon. Now, you know, if you're in church and you've got pastors and elders and people in, in the ministry, well, th- that's kind of a no-brainer. But what about in your family? What about in your neighborhood? But what about where you work in your social uh, involvements? Can you recognize the hand of God on people's lives? You see, I want to know who's, who's God has his hand on. I want to know the people that have been sent for a purpose and for a reason. You know, sometimes when you see someone with a hand of God on their life, they may not even be Christians. They may not even look like they know God. You, you can't tell. You see, there was a man whose name was Saul in the New Testament who, who fought against the people of God, who persecuted the people of God. But the hand of God was on him. He looked like the archenemy enemy of the church. But all the time, the hand of God was upon him. And, of course, he was converted and became the great Apostle Paul. But the point is there was a season when the hand of God was on him, but it didn't look like it. I believe there is a knowing that God will give us so that we can spot people that have some degree of destiny, some degree of anointing, some degree of divine purpose on their life. You need to know who's God, who God has his hand on. The second thing we learn is to recognize the people that God sends into your life. Now, I recognize a lot of people that have the hand of God on them, but I can't tell you that God has sent them into my life. But there are people God sends into your life. You are the answer to somebody's prayer. And somebody is the answer to your prayer. Everything God does, He uses somebody. And you need to know who God is sending into your life. You know, last year, I know for certain God sent a doctor into my life. I know for sure God sent a doctor in my life. There may be someone that has a business opportunity that God sends into your life. There may be someone that's going to influence you or open an opportunity to you. God sends someone into your life. But if you don't ever know it and you can't discern who God is sending, you can get really messed up because you know what? The devil sends people into your life too. And you have to be able to discern who God is sending and who the devil is sending. Have you ever known anyone that someone new came in their life and wrecked their life? Well, obviously God didn't send that person. They didn't have the ability to discern who God is sending versus who the enemy is sending. So the second thing I learned is how to recognize the people God is sending in my life. The third thing that I learned from David is to accept God's choices of the people he uses. Sometimes I see people that God is raising up and I'm thinking, God, is that the best you could do? I mean, if all you got to choose from, why them? Have you ever had that feeling? Like, why did they get the nod? Why did you put them on the team? I mean, I don't understand, God. I mean, I, I mean, you, it just seemed like you could have done better than that. But you have to learn to accept the choices God makes in whom he will use. God doesn't choose the people I would choose. God doesn't use the people that maybe I would have used in that situation. But he knows best, and I don't. So you have to accept the people God chooses. For instance, Jonathan. Jonathan could have said, hey God, what's wrong with me? I mean, like, I've been faithful, I'm a good guy, I'm not like my dad. I was raised here, I know how to run the army, I know how to run the nation, the people love me. I mean, why are you giving it to David, not me? Jonathan had to accept the fact, God didn't choose me, God chose David. What a test. A place you wanted, a place you worked for, a place you've lived your whole life for. And God says, no, you can't have that place. We'll give it to somebody else. Can you accept that? Jonathan did. He accepted it. And he facilitated God's plan and gave up what he probably had lived his life for. A lot to be said for that. Number four, to always do the right thing regardless of the personal cost. All right, Jonathan realizes I'm not the man. I just have to accept that. David is the man. I have to accept that. And now I've got to get on board and help God's will. I've got to be a part of what God's doing. But if I do, it's going to cost me everything. I'm going to lose my life. I'm going to lose the kinship. I'm not. It's going to cost me everything. But Jonathan said, i got to do the right thing. You know, and that's what you and I live by every day of our life. i got to do the right thing. How many of you live like that? i got to do the right thing. Here's the catch. I don't always know what the right thing is to do. But when I figure it out, I'm gonna do it. But the problem is I don't always know what the right thing to do is. Because I'm, I'm trying to figure it out. But when I figure it out, I'm gonna do it. I've already made up my mind in advance. When I figure out the right thing to do, that's what I'm gonna do. It's just that sometimes I don't know what the right thing to do is, and I gotta figure it out. That calls me to pray, seek God. I, that means I've got to seek counsel. I've got to figure out what the right thing to do is. Because I'm already committed to doing the right thing. It's just sometimes I don't know what it is. But when I know. The decision's already been made. So remember, always do the right thing regardless of what it costs you personally. Number five, be a faithful friend. You may not can be taller than you are or shorter than you are or thinner than you are or stronger than you are or smarter than you are. I don't know. Maybe you and me, we're all working with limitations. We can't, we can't really change. Some limitations I can change, but I've got some limitations I can't change. But I'm going to tell you what, every one of us can be a faithful friend. I may not can do a lot of things I want to do in life, and I may not can change a lot of things I want to change, but I can be a faithful friend. And every one of you can be a faithful friend. And David and Jonathan were faithful friends. And there's no excuse for not being a faithful friend. It doesn't mean sometimes you won't mess up and make mistakes and hurt one another, but if you're a faithful friend, you can always work it out few years ago, a friend of mine and I had a little bit of difficulty. And so after a while, we had a disagreement and we talked it out. We went back a little while later and made some apologies and tried to get something worked out. But the friendship never happened again. No problems, no bad feelings, just no friendship. What that told me was there wasn't a friendship there to start with. Because if a friendship can't ride a storm, If a friendship can have some hurt and pain and disappointments and some things can't go crooked and, and, you know, you can't fix it, maybe there wasn't enough relationship there to start with. Because friendships are tested. That's what makes them strong. That's when you know you really got a friend. It's when you look up year after year and they're still there. And you go through stuff that's hurtful and painful, but it never goes away. And somehow we get it fixed because friendship is is what it's about. So I want to encourage you today. Be like Jonathan and David and be a faithful friend. Number six, always keep your word. Always keep your word. Sometimes it's difficult, but always keep your word. Whatever it takes, keep your word. When you give your word and then circumstances changes, keep your word anyway. When you give your word and you think you know how things are going to go, but they go just the opposite, keep your word anyway. When it's going to cost you money, keep your word anyway. When you've got to work double hard and you've got to make yourself do it and it's the hardest thing you've ever done in your life, keep your word. Keep your word. Jonathan kept his word to David. You think about it. When he left David in the woods and he went back to the palace and he talks with his father and his father has no doubt a very convincing story and, and all, the, all the cards seem to be a stacked against David and it's David against the world and Jonathan in the middle. He could have, he, he must have surely thought, you know what, I think David's time to go. I, I think David's gone too far and I, I think I better stay with my dad and I better stay with my, the, the popular and I better stay with the majority. But he made he, he gave his word to David and he wouldn't go back on it. And David gave his word to Jonathan and he wouldn't go back on it. Always keep your word. Number seven, I learn from these men to live your life so as to be a blessing to future generations. I learn from these men to live your life so that you'll be a blessing to future generations. It's not all about me and mine and my life here on earth, but there's generations yet unborn to time that I really hope to be a blessing to. You see, next week I'm going to talk about Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth was Jonathan's son. And when the king was stripped out of uh, Saul's house and all the people of Saul were killed, there was one son whose name was Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, that survived. And years later, David found out that Jonathan had one son left. And Jonathan goes, David goes and restores that son into the kingdom because David was a covenant keeper. And the reason David did that is because he and Jonathan had made a covenant. And Jonathan said, this one thing I require of you, don't ever raise a sword against me or anybody in my household. And so years later, Saul's dead, Jonathan's dead, and the kingdom's changed, and David's king, and there's one son. And David remembers the covenant he had with Father Jonathan, and he saves Mephibosheth. I'll talk to you about that next week. You can watch it on the podcast. Here's the point. Live your life for future generations. It's not just about doing all and being all I can in my life, but it's about living a way that I can be a blessing to generations yet unborn. Sons and daughters and grandsons and granddaughters that I may never see or may never see me, but I can live a a life today that will affect them in generations to come. One of my favorite studies is the life of David and how that God made such a commitment to David to be faithful, faithful, to David and to bless David that 10 generations later God was heard as having said I cannot destroy Jerusalem because of my servant David 10 generations later God is saying I cannot remove this king because of my word to David 10 generations later this king was wicked this king should have been taken out this king would have been destroyed it been totally taken out of his his lineage But God said, no, because of David, I can't do it. So ten generations later, David is still blessing his family. They're getting breaks, and they're getting cuts, and they're getting favor, and they're getting forgiveness when they didn't deserve an ounce of it. But they were still getting it because of David, ten generations had pleased God in his lifetime. I just believe that righteousness is stronger than wickedness. I just believe that love is stronger than hate. I just believe that goodness is better than badness. I believe that light is stronger than darkness. And I believe that if you can live a wicked life and pass that wickedness down to your children, I believe 10,000 times more you can live a life of righteousness and pass it down to the generations after you. So we learn from Jonathan and David. Don't just live to live up your life. But live in such a way that you can pass a blessing to generation after generation after generation. And children you'll never see and will never know you can say, you know what? I'm still living in the blessing that my great, 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 great grandparents lived in. So live your life so as to be a blessing to future generations. Can you say amen? You can close your Bibles and... Your iPads and your cell phones and all that other stuff. It's a new day, isn't it, Chris? In the world today, there's 7 billion people. Alive today, there are 7 billion people. And of those 7 billion people, there's two categories. And all of them fall into one category or the other. There's this one category called those in covenant with God. And then there's this other category called those not in covenant with God. And every one of the seven billion people are in one category or the other. Now, you know, as a man, I I don't know who all is saved and who isn't saved. I'll be honest with you. It's not for me to judge and decide. I mean, mean, some people kind of obviously are not saved and some are obviously saved. But there's a whole lot of people live close to the line and I... I don't know if there's... It's not for me to decide who, who those people are saved or unsaved. But you can count on one thing. The Bible says God knows who are His. And He knows you're either saved or you're not saved with God. It's not like fuzzy. It's not like confusing. Do you know who your children are? Do you ever wonder if they're really your kids? <laughs> no, that one's a good illustration. <laughs> That that threw you way off right there. (laughs) Yes, sometimes you do wonder if they're really yours. (laughs) God knows who belongs to Him. He knows either you're in covenant or you're not in covenant. He knows that for sure. And you need to know for sure that you're in covenant with God. It's the legal instrument of your salvation. And the way you get saved is you have to enter into covenant. Covenant. There has to be a moment in time where you were not saved, but now you are, where you were not in covenant, but now you are. And the way you get in covenant with God is by repenting of your sins, believing on Jesus Christ with all of your heart, and making a vow to be a child of God and to be a follower of Jesus the rest of your life. It's a covenant. At the core of every covenant is a vow. A vow. And you can get saved in a lot of different places in a lot of different ways and a lot of words can be used to get the job done. But at the core of your salvation experience is your vow to be a Christian and to follow Jesus Christ. That's the core. And if you don't do that, nothing else you do is really going to matter. It's just like when you get married. A lot of things happen around the, in the context of a marriage. But at the core of the wedding is the vow. And if you don't make that vow, you're not married. And so... Getting saved is about vowing your life to Christ. Now, sometimes little guys get saved. They're just little kids, but they, they comprehend. I want to be a Christian, and I'm promising Jesus to follow him all days of my life. You don't have to be very old to get that done. My, my little four-year-old grandson, God gave his heart to the Lord. Little Peyton gave his heart to the Lord last year about this time. And he meant it. And he's saved. He was born again. Now, other kids, they're older. But I'm just telling you, when a child can comprehend that they're, they love Jesus, he loves them, and, and they want, they promise their life to be a Christian, that's at the point that they're old enough to be saved. And they become born again, and they're part of the family of God. Um, and so, uh, <clears throat> some get saved older, older. Some get saved in the last season of life. But God is so wonderful. He'll save you in any season of life if you'll just... Make that covenant with him and give your life to Christ. There has to be that point in time when you know that took place. If you're here today and you can't go back to the time and place and and the moment that you made that commitment to Christ and you know in your heart there was a link made, your soul was knit to God, and, and you made that commitment to be a child of God, then I want to encourage you to make sure your covenant with God is in place. Right here today, we'll help lead you to the Lord and and lead you in a prayer that will give you that that, uh, assurance that you're saved. Now, somewhere back in your past, you know, you may have made that commitment and you've taken a few dirt roads and a few detours. And you just need to get back right with God. It's so easy to do that. It's so easy to do that. You just have to renew your commitment to follow Jesus. You know, he's not here to punish anybody. That's not the, the era we're living in. He's in an era of love and peace and forgiveness. He's not trying to punish anybody. He's trying to get everybody saved. That's his whole mindset, just to get everybody saved. There will be a day of judgment. It's coming, but not today. Today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. Today is the day to give your heart to the Lord. If you've been away, come back. God's not mad at anybody. He loves everybody. He's doing everything He can to get people saved. God sent His Son to get people saved, not lost. Get them saved. So it, his desire is to save people. So if you've made that commitment sometime in your life and you got away, make a new commitment today. Give your heart to the Lord and make sure that you're in covenant with God and you're a part of the, the family of God through covenant relationships.